0: Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has now been formally charged with bribery, fraud and breach of trust He is the first ever sitting Israeli Prime Minister to face such charges in the list of alleged wrongdoings
1: After a year of indictments, elections and political paralysis Benjamin
2: Netanyahu is back Benjamin Netanyahu, the caretaker Prime Minister of Israel was to appear in a Jerusalem court this week indicted on three charges. But due to the coronavirus, it's been postponed for at least two months. Despite the charges, earlier this month, Netanyahu's Likud party gained the largest number of seats in the Israeli parliamentary elections, but not enough to form a majority government. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. Netanyahu was born in 1949, the year after the birth of the State of Israel. To understand him, you also need to understand Zionism, the political force that created Israel, and the major schism in the Zionist movement that has shaped Israel ever since. Professor Neil Lockery is the author of The Irresistible Rise of Benjamin Netanyahu.
0: There were two major strands of Zionism. One was Labour Zionism, which was, I would call socialist, was a small s. They were the dominant force in Israeli politics for the first 29 years. Names who came out of that will be people like David Ben-Gurion, Golda Meir, uh, Yiksha Rabin, Shimon Peres. Now, the revisionist Zionist movement was a different movement altogether, and the difference between them and Labour Zionists really focused on a number of issues. One was the question of greater Israel, and greater Israel was deemed to be a Jewish state from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean. The other major difference between the two movements was how they envisaged relations with the local Arab population. The Labour Zionists really hadn't given much thought to what the reaction would be of the local Arab population to the arrival of these waves of Jewish emigration to Palestine. The revisionist movement very much believed that they would never be accepted by the local Arab population, and hence the notion of what became known as the Iron Wall. Israel needed to create an iron wall around it to protect it from attacks from the local Arab population. And this has been very much a kind of ideological thread that has run right up until... Almost the present day. I mean, there are elements of it when you hear Benjamin Netanyahu speak.
2: Both Benjamin Netanyahu's father and grandfather believed in the revisionist Zionist philosophy, that Israel should stretch from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, and that Palestinians should be excluded from Israel with an iron wall if necessary. Professor Robert Friedman is the editor of Israel Under Netanyahu, Domestic Politics and foreign policy.
3: He comes from what we call a revisionist family. His father, Ben Sion, was one of the original right-wingers in Israel, was a follower of Jabotinsky, who was the leader of the revisionist party. And basically, they had two concepts. One, whole world is against us. We've got to be strong, no compromises. And number two, we've got to build an iron wall around Israel. And the Arabs will stop, after a while, banging their heads against the iron wall, and make peace with Israel.
2: So what did that mean when he was growing up? I mean, how influential do you think his father was in terms of his thinking?
3: Well, I think there are two things to keep in mind. Number one, his father could not get a good teaching job in Israel because at that time was controlled by the left. And he resented that. And I think some of that resentment went down to Netanyahu. And secondly, of course, there was this very strong revisionist background, giving the worldview, which he really imbibed from his father.
2: You said he couldn't get a job in Israel, so that meant, in a sense, he went to the United States. Yeah, so. he
3: went to the United States to teach at Gratz College, where I also studied. It's a place where high school kids can get college credit for courses in Jewish studies. And he taught Jewish history there.
2: Netanyahu spent three main periods in the United States, first in the 1960s when he was at school, then again in the 1970s when he went to university at MIT, and thirdly in the 1980s as a diplomat. So what impact did America have on the young Netanyahu?
0: The crucial time, I think, is university, and I think that was very important for him because he really shaped his Americanism there. And his desire, I think, for an Americanization of politics in Israel really sprung from his his university years. He studied architecture, and later he studied business. But also, this was where he really started his pro-Israel activities, speaking to university campuses, taking part in, in debates about Israel and this is, I think, in many ways where he sort of sharpened his debating and his media skills.
3: Well, I don't want to be cynical, but it certainly perfected his English. And what that means is when he was a spokesman at the UN or as a spokesman during the first Gulf War, a spokesman in different times, he could make Israel's case very well, because unlike the Arabs who spoke in heavy accents, he spoke in good American English, which he still does.
2: In between school and university, Netanyahu followed his older brother, Jonathan Netanyahu, known as Yoni, into the military, and served for five years in an elite unit of the IDF. In June 1976, while back at university, Netanyahu's life changed forever, with the death of his brother Yoni in a military operation in Entebbe,
3: Uganda. Israel stunned the world with a daring and brazen raid on Entebbe. Terrorists for the Palestinian cause hijacked Air France flight 139. All but four hostages were saved and one Israeli commando was killed.
2: And that commando was Netanyahu's brother, Yoni.
3: He was a wonderful brother. He was a
0: my world collapsed. Netanyahu himself describes the death of his brother as the single most traumatic moment in his life. And I think it's an indication of just how close he was to his brother. And he blamed Yasser Arafat for the death of Yonis and Netanyahu. He doesn't make a big, a big thing about it, but clearly it was the single worst thing to happen to him.
1: And when Yoni was killed in 1976...
2: Anshul Pfeffer, journalist and author of Bibi, The Turbulent Life and Times of Benjamin Netanyahu.
1: It certainly both personally and also put him on a path where he became a public figure because a lot of the focus actually went on Bibi Netanyahu as the brother of one of the commanders of the raid in the same unit. He didn't really have the political ambitions
0: before, and afterwards he, he saw it as his kind of duty to, if you like, take the torch from his brother and run with it in the direction of politics.
2: Returning to America, Netanyahu, who then called himself Ben Natai, appeared on US TV shows like The Advocate, arguing against the creation of a Palestinian state.
3: Mr. Natai, is the issue of self-determination the core of the conflict in the Middle East?
1: No, I don't believe it is. I'm 28 years old. I've had to defend my country in two wars and in many battles. Nobody wants peace more than Israel. But the stumbling block to the road for peace is this demand for a PLO state, which will mean more war, war. And I think, I sincerely believe, if this demand is abandoned, we can have real and genuine peace. Thank you. Thank you. Together with his father, they set up a think tank. So Netanyahu, at a young age, in his late 20s, got experience through that think tank of working with senior politicians and statesmen from Israel and from the United States. And that was one of the reasons why he was chosen afterwards, at still age to to be a senior diplomat. So all these things were key in the beginning of his career. But I think that even if Netanyahu's 20s had been different and his brother hadn't been killed, I still think he would have found his way into politics. It's a profession that he's very well suited for.
2: After university, Netanyahu again returned to the United States, this time as an Israeli diplomat first as the deputy head of the Israeli mission in Washington and then as Israeli ambassador to the United Nations.
0: You need to remember two things here. Number one, that the Israeli diplomatic service is very politicised. So it is actually a very normal route into politics to first of all go into diplomacy. In, In some countries like England, it wouldn't be considered a normal route for an ambitious politician to take. Secondly, there was really not that many young Israeli leaders at the time who could speak English as well as he could, who could conduct briefings with the media, who could present himself in such a way that was very sort of Americanized.
1: the time he spent in New York in the 80s, these are the Reagan years, first well, he was in Washington then in New York and he acquired at the time both colleagues contacts donors friends and you know these people are still are quite important in today's administration and establishment in the US and it's worth pointing out that one of the people he met when he was ambassador at the UN in New York in the 80s was a young upcoming real estate Donald Trump so when Trump was elected and everyone was so surprised in November 2016, and every leader around the world was trying to find a way to talk to Donald Trump. The only one who actually already had Trump, who Trump knew personally, was Netanyahu.
2: This is Rear Vision, and I'm Annabel Quince. We're tracing the story of Benjamin Netanyahu, as he tries desperately to form a new government in Israel, while at the same time appearing in court on corruption charges. In 1980s, Netanyahu returned to Israel and moved straight into politics.
0: He really carved out for himself very quickly a lot of support was in the Likud and his timing coincided with the decision of the Likud to start having primary elections to basically select their list of candidates for the Knesset. Netanyahu's arrival on the scene coincided with this sort of democratization which appeared to favor the young generation. And he really was able to speak to what was actually a very different Likud party in 88 than it had been previously. And that, I think, was very important in in pushing him forward. And in 1988, when he ran for the Likud in the primary, he was much more sophisticated in his campaign than almost anyone else was in the Likud party.
2: When in 1990 Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, Netanyahu was the deputy minister of foreign affairs and quickly became the key spokesman for Israel with the international media. Uh, Mr
1: Cheney said that this could be a prolonged engagement and uh, he may be right, but I, I cannot say. We have a saying in Israel that we know how wars start, you don't know exactly how they'll end. I personally am confident that this will end with a a decisive defeat of uh, Saddam Hussein, but it's the little part that we always have to watch out for.
0: Timing is quite a lot in politics, and he was probably the best Israeli politician to deal with the international media during both the diplomatic crisis ...caused by Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in August 1990... ...and then the military phase starting in January 1991. His media skills, his very, very good English... ...made him the obvious spokesman for the Israeli government. At the time, his boss, the Minister of Foreign Affairs... ...a man called David Levy, didn't speak English... And therefore, Benjamin Netanyahu was pushed out very much as the spokesman for Israel. And he gave his famous interview when Israel was attacked. At the time, it wasn't known if Saddam Hussein was going to use chemical weapons against Israel. Netanyahu gave his famous interview from a TV studio, which, when the sirens went, he donned his his gas mask and carried on doing the interview. And that, I think, really pushed his reputation internationally. And for a man who had held no cabinet position was in Israel, he was probably or arguably Israel's most famous politician at that time.
3: Also, once Begin left the party in 1983, there's really an opening. I mean, you had Shamir, who was the prime minister off and on after that until he was defeated in 1992 by Rabin. But this is a quiet guy. His English was not good. He tended to alienate a lot of the Americans. This enabled Netanyahu to rise up quickly, and his only real competition was Ariel Sharon. In Israel, hardliner Benjamin Netanyahu has won a landslide election victory
0: to lead the opposition Likud party. 43-year-old Netanyahu, nicknamed Bibi, represents a new generation of writers strongly opposed to any return of Israeli-occupied territories. Following the defeat of the Likud in 1992 to Yikshak Rabin and Shimon Peres' Labour Party. Likud went through a significant change, generational, and that was reflected right the way through the party, was the people voting for the leader of the Likud really being of, of a younger generation, and that, of course, favored Netanyahu. The other factor was that the Likud was absolutely bankrupt in the short term, he barely reliant upon the parties to the right of the Likud, and also to the settlers' movement, who were much better funded than the Likud, and their funding was very much based on opposition to the Oslo Accords. They were the ones opposing the Israeli-Palestinian process in general, and to some extent, Netanyahu had to position himself quite carefully. To be able to make a lot of political noise by essentially lining himself up with these people and piggybacking, I think, is the best expression on the back of their funding.
1: Netanyahu represented those who were against the Oslo Accord. They felt that the Oslo Accord would give the Palestinians too much power to threaten Yasser Arafat's PLO, that they, would, they were actually prepared to make peace with Israel. Netanyahu at the time called it the salami tactic, that they'll take slice after slice, and first of all, they'll take the areas that the Rabin government was prepared to give them in Gaza. And that they would use that as a base to threaten the rest of Israel. That has remained Netanyahu's philosophy and perspective ever since.
0: Israel and the Middle East and the world was rocked this morning when a gunman fired at the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin.
1: Mr Rabin is reported to have been shot three times by the gunman. Ambulances rushed to the scene taking Mr Rabin to Tel Aviv's Ichilov hospital.
2: The Oslo peace process divided Israel and played a part in the assassination of the then Prime Minister Rabin. But many Israelis also blame Netanyahu.
0: Personally, I think it was a very toxic time in Israeli politics. I think Netanyahu certainly bears some responsibility for creating the poisonous atmosphere that led to the assassination of Rabin.
1: After the assassination there was a backlash, Netanyahu was seen by many Israelis, even Israelis who had been as someone who had been in some way part of the incitement towards violence against Rabin and some figures in Likud thought that the first order of business was to replace their leadership. It's official. Right winger Benjamin Netanyahu is Israel's new prime minister. He's claimed victory after scraping in by less than one percent of the vote.
2: He's campaigned on a policy of preventing an independent Palestinian state, expanding settlements, including Hebron, and refusing any Palestinian
1: claim on Jerusalem. There were two reasons for his very surprising and wafer-thin victory in 1996. The first is that there was a very large part of the Israeli public and a majority who were against the Oslo Accord. And Netanyahu, even when he wasn't very popular, knew that he could build on that large part of the public. And the other thing is, Netanyahu is an incredible campaigner, and he was against Shimon Peres, a man over 20 years his senior, tired and old-fashioned, and Netanyahu brought... His professional campaigners in the United States, and ran a very effective campaign. He was so much better at the campaign than Shimon Peres was.
2: However, his first term as prime minister between 1996 and 99 was not a great success.
0: He made every possible mistake that you would probably expect from the youngest prime minister in Israel's history, a man who had no formal cabinet experience. And a man who was running a government which had eight or nine different parties or factions in it, the majority of which were deeply opposed to the Oslo Accords with the Palestinians. And therefore Netanyahu in many ways was caught between a rock and a hard place. The Americans pushing him to offer more concessions to the Palestinians. His cabinet, his coalition saying no, no, no. You must resist the American pressure. You must not give anything else to the Palestinians. And this made life politically very difficult for him, and he failed miserably.
3: He learned from his first time in office. And maybe the main lesson he learned was when he finally did make concessions to the Palestinians, the Y Plantation talks in 1998, it brought down his government. And I think he really decided, I'm never going to make that mistake again. And he hasn't.
2: He loses the election in 1999. What impact did that have? And was there any sense at that point where he thought, well, I'll just give politics up?
0: He lost very badly the election. I think we need to say this wasn't a a narrow defeat. I think that really personally stung him. And so he basically picked up his ball, took it inside his house and then decided that, you know what? I need to make some money. So he went into business, was very successful dealing with Israeli American companies, and he made a small fortune doing it. It was quite an amazing turnaround because one minute, you know, his name was in every newspaper in the world. Everyone was talking about Benjamin Netanyahu, and then he just like disappeared. He vanished into thin air. And very quickly the Likud moved on. The Likud elected Ariel Sharon as its new leader and Sharon had never accepted Netanyahu's leadership of the party. And Sharon becomes very much the, the dominant force within, within centre-right politics in Israel.
2: Netanyahu, however, never really left politics behind, and by 2003 he was back, serving first as foreign minister and then as finance minister in the Sharon government. But then political events created an opening, which Netanyahu used to his advantage.
3: You had Sharon, who was the leader of Likud, and wanted to pull out of withdrawal from the Gaza Strip. He could not bring the party with him. So he created a new party called Kadima, which left a vacuum in Likud, which, of course, Netanyahu was able to to take. And if you remember, Sharon then had a stroke in 2006. So you had Ehud Olmert and Sipi Livni basically leading the new Kadima party. And Likud was in the opposition, only got 12 seats in 2006, but quickly grew to 28 seats in the 2009 election. It was one less than Kadima, but he was able to forge the tie with the religious part, the ultra-Orthodox parties and other parties, and he was able to form a government where Tzipi Livni was not able to, and he's been in power ever since.
0: In the period really from 2005, 2006 to 2009, Netanyahu was starting to rebuild Likud But he's, in effect, even though the name is the same, he is, in effect, creating a new party. And that party very much is Benjamin Netanyahu's party. He is the king of that party, the most senior figure, no real opposition to him, majority of the membership deeply supportive of him.
2: And I'm wondering, with him regaining control of Likud, has he changed the party
3: significantly? Well, you have to understand that Israel changed, and Likud made use of the changes in Israel. In 2000, Ehud Barak, when he was prime minister, withdrew from southern Lebanon, withdrew Israeli troops from southern Lebanon. The idea at the time was this would finally bring peace. The UN recognized the border, but instead of bringing peace, it brought rocket fire and ultimately a war in 2006 between Israel and Hezbollah. Then Sharon, Ariel Sharon, as prime minister, withdrew from Gaza. That was supposed to bring peace, but it didn't. It brought rocket fire into Israel, which continues to this day from Gaza. So this led, plus the second Intifada, where Hamas would put bombs in pizza parlors and in uh, restaurants and coffee shops to make the Israeli lives miserable. All this shifted the Israeli polity to the right. And Netanyahu was able to exploit this. That's, I think, a central issue.
2: And so looking at his second, third, and fourth term, right. how different was he as prime minister?
3: Well, I think the central thing is he's been able to build a stronger coalition with the religious parties second time around than the first time around. And again, as I mentioned, he had made the concessions to the Palestinians and Y plantation to pull out of 13% of the area in the West Bank, he has not made that concession again.
2: And the series of charges that he has been indicted for, and I think it was last year he was indicted, what are they and what what do they actually relate to?
3: Okay, one is taking expensive cigars, champagne, etc., in return for political favours. The second one was the politics of radio station. In other words... Betzec, which is a communications group in Israel, has Walla, which is a communications not unlike ABC, but private. So the deal was that Netanyahu would give some special exemptions for Betzek in return for Walla giving him better coverage. The third one was perhaps even worse. The major paper in Israel is Yediodachronot, or the, in Hebrew is a latest news. But there's also a rival paper now called Israel Today, Israel Hayom. And that was cutting into Yediot Ahronot. But Yediot Ahronot in 2015 was giving very negative coverage of Netanyahu. So Netanyahu tried to make a deal with the publisher of Yediot Ahronot and said, look, my friend is financing Israel today the rival paper i'll get him to weaken his support if you give me better coverage in the odachronot
2: so if you look back at the period of time he's been in office what do you think are some of his biggest achievements and what impact has he really had on israeli politics and in terms of shaping israeli politics
1: i'd say there's three main elements one is keeping a gradually improving status quo for Israel. He has of Israel in a period when Israel has been more prosperous from an economic point of view and more secure in the region. The other part of his legacy he's been a very polarizing figure. He didn't invent the splits fractures in Israel, but he certainly exploited and deepened them for his own political interest. He's very much a fragmenter and a polarizer of Israeli society.
3: Well, if you look at his biggest achievement, I think it is forging a very close relationship with the Trump administration. I'm not sure this is strategic, because long run, you need support from both the Democrats and Republicans. He's forged a quasi-alliance with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, United Arab Emirates, against the Iranians. And that's been, I think, positive long run for Israel. His biggest problem is he's done nothing with the Palestinians.
0: If your definition of success is very low, survival, maintenance of Israel, reduction to some degree of threats against Israel, then many Israelis view him as as successful. Certainly his supporters do. If you set the bar higher, then I think his, his achievements are much more limited. Liberalization is still far from complete within Israel. The economy has a number of problems that need to be addressed. He hasn't shown the same kind of zeal for transforming the economy as he had when he was Minister of Finance. And also, in terms of the Arab Israeli conflict, practically no movement at all within 10 years, in the last 10 years.
2: Neil Lockery, the author of The Irresistible Rise of Benjamin Netanyahu. My other guests, Robert Friedman, editor of Israel Under Netanyahu, and Anshel Pfeffer, author of Bibi. The sound engineer is Isabella Troppiano. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear
3: Vision on RN.